Thank you. You can uh, open your Bibles to Colossians 1. You should know that tonight I've had a, a night high life, which is I've been introduced by the national director. <laughs> national director of Australia. Tomorrow I hope to say a little bit more uh, about why I thank God for each of you. I think Riley's going to give me a, a couple of minutes to do that. I would do that now, but we're going to take some time and we're going to just stop and stare at Jesus. As I grow older, I've, I'm finding that there are certain things in my life that are growing much sweeter to me. One of those is our marriage and my relationship with Jill. It has gotten sweeter. One of the things that has also gotten sweeter as I get older are the pastors of Sovereign Grace. Um, Riley and Richard, Joel, and Dave, my friend, and Brendan, and Andrew and Austin. You men and your wives have become sweeter to me. And not just the, the pastors of Sovereign Grace churches, the members of Sovereign Grace churches. I couldn't wait to get here to be with you again because you have become sweeter to me. I carry you on my heart. I pray for both churches. I've often had this thought that if we, for some reason, needed to leave Covenant Fellowship Church, which we can't fathom doing, but if we ever had to leave Covenant Fellowship Church, what Sovereign Grace Church would I go to? And I thought, I would come here to Sydney. That's where I would come. I would. Now, the key to that would be to have all my kids and grandkids move over because I don't know that Jill would come with me without them. But you have become sweeter to me. And most importantly, as I've grown older, Jesus, my Jesus, our Jesus, he has become sweeter to me. And that is a grace I don't deserve as Riley mentioned, uh, he's asked me to preach a, what he calls a stop and stare at Jesus sermon so that we can, we can do just that, stop and stare at Jesus so that our zeal for him would be stirred and stoked. And Colossians 1 is one of those stop and stare passages that will help us marvel at the preeminence and the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. The title of this sermon is Zealous for Jesus, and we're going to read Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God bless the preaching of his word. Just a couple weeks ago, on July 6, thousands of Australians came together to dance to the song, Nutbush City Limits. Ah, you know this song. In tribute to the late singer Tina Turner at Australia's most remote musical festival, you probably know it, the Big Red Bash near Birdsville in Outback, Queensland. 5,838 Australians danced for five minutes to set a new record for the largest nutbush dance in the world, <laughs> as adjudicated by the Australian Book of Records. The nutbush has been dubbed Australia's unofficial national dance and is often performed in Australian schools, weddings, and gatherings. There's, there's this incredible drone footage that shows giddy festival goers dressed in a variety of eye-catching outfits, stepping and twisting and kicking in time to the beat of the nutbush below the big red sand dune at the edge of the Simpson Desert. So here's my question. Why would 6,000 Australians travel to the outback, many dressed like Tina Turner, and dance with a coordinated zeal, with a passion? Well, Nathan Heath, Nathan, Heath and Adam, three mates in their 40s from Brisbane, on a three-week trip across Queensland, wore women's dresses covered in sparkly tassels. You should see these guys. There's pictures online for the record attempt. Here's what Adam said. This year is all about paying tribute to Tina Turner, and we'll sure give it a red-hot crack, said Adam. <laughs> Why did Nathan, Heath, and Adam dance with a red-hot zeal? Because what they valued was paying tribute to Tina Turner, who, as you know, died in March. Festival organizer Greg Donovan told Daily Mail Australia the song was a part of the Australian DNA. This is what he says. We say it's a world record, but it's really an Australian thing. Because no one in America or the UK or anywhere else does it, but we love it. It's a great thing to be a part of as an Australian. So why do some Australians passionately, with zeal, participate in breaking the nutbush nut bush record? Because what they value is being something uniquely that's Australian. So why am I telling you this story? Here's the answer. We are zealous for that which we value most, for that which has great worth to us. So I ask you tonight, Riley asked it, what are you zealous for? You might have zeal for Australia to win the Ashes test against England, because winning the Ashes, especially against England, has great value to you. Going into the fourth test this week, you were up to one, right? Not going so well in the fourth test. Dave is excited about that. And you may be heading to the fifth test. 
Many of you may have zeal for Australia to beat New Zealand in the rugby championship next week on July 29th because there's great, great worth for the Wallabies to beat the All Blacks, right, who are a premier rugby powerhouse. Maybe your zeal is your family and your kids and grandkids and extended family to spend time together over Christmas or over holiday because what's of great value to you is the memories those times create together. You might be zealous for friends to come together over a a delicious meal and good drink and they share warm conversation together in your home because you value how that kind of context, how it how it builds friendships and creates memories. My point is this, we are zealous for that which we treasure, for that which we value, for that which has great worth to us. See, tonight it's my prayer that our zeal for Christ is stirred again by stopping and staring at Jesus whose infinite worth, whose infinite value is seen in his preeminence over everything, as the text says. So our text reveals Christ's preeminence in three ways. Here's the first way. The preeminence of Christ in creation. The preeminence of Christ in creation. Paul begins this stop and stare message that establishes the preeminence of Jesus Christ by telling us there in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of, of the invisible God. You know what that word means. That word, that word image carries the, the sense of something that looks like something else or represents something. One of the 10 grandchildren that, I, that Jill and I have, we have a grandson that's named Jude, and he looks very much like me. In fact, people come up to him and, and they say to him, you, you look a lot like your grandfather. We say in America, you're the spitting image of your grandfather. In fact, my His mom, our oldest daughter, Tracy, says, sometimes it feels like I'm raising my father, actually. (laughs) Jude has a similar image as me. And that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In fact, the author of Hebrews says the very same thing about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says, he is the radiance of, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So the pre-incarnate son, Jesus Christ, perfectly reflected the Father in eternity past and now radiates the exact imprint of the invisible God in his incarnation when he was born a babe in Bethlehem. See, you and I have never seen God, but when we see Jesus... We see an exact imprint of the image of God himself. Now, this this image language that's used here in verse 15, it looks back to Genesis and the creation account and draws a tight connection between Jesus Christ and Adam. Adam was made, we have all been made, we are told in Genesis 1 verse 26, in the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26, then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of 
the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made Adam. He made all of mankind. He made all of us in the image so that Adam, so that we would represent God on this earth as we fulfill the creation mandate that he's given us. But we know what Genesis 3 tells us, don't we? Because of Adam's sin, he failed to be God's perfect representative on the earth. And so Jesus Christ, the divine, eternal Son, becomes flesh through the virgin birth to reverse Adam's failed representative headship. The first Adam failed, but Jesus Christ Through the incarnation, he steps into our world as the last Adam who perfectly radiates the image of God because as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, Jesus was without sin. In other words, Jesus is the archetype. He is the epitome. He is the perfect embodiment of what it means for people to be made in the image of God. Steve Willem says this, as we walk through the storyline of Scripture, we who are created after the divine pattern ultimately are created after the image of the Son, who in his deity is the exact image of the invisible God, and in his humanity takes on our image, becomes the last Adam, the true man, and the head of the new humanity. See, Brothers and sisters, no other man, no other person could reverse Adam's sinful failure except the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, as Wellam says, is the true man. David Wells says this, In Christ, we see all that Adam was intended to be, but never was, all that we are not, but which we will become through resurrection. All that Adam was intended to be, all that we are not is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus, no one else, only Jesus is the perfect image, the exact imprint of the invisible God, and therefore he is rightly called there In our text, the firstborn of all creation, there in verse 15. Now, in using that term, firstborn, Paul isn't saying that Christ was a created being. Rather, firstborn in this text, it means supreme over. We know that because firstborn is used in the Old Testament to identify Israel as God's firstborn son, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, revealing Israel's status as representative and ruler of God in the world. And then in Psalm 89, verse 27, a messianic psalm that's where God speaks of David and in doing so points to Christ and speaks about Christ, he says this, I will make him, he's speaking about Christ here, I will make him the firstborn, the highest, the supreme, the highest of the kings of the earth. Which is why the NIV translates Colossians 1 verse 15 this way. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn 
over all creation. Jesus is the highest of all the kings. He is preeminent in creation. No other person that we know can be called legitimately the firstborn of all creation because no other person existed before creation like Christ existed. We know that because in verse 16, it says, by him all things were created, meaning that Christ existed before creation and he therefore is supreme over creation. Again, Steve Willem says, as the firstborn, Christ existed before creation, functioned as the agent of creation, and therefore stands supreme over creation. Let me ask you, do you know anyone else who existed before creation? You don't, do you? You only know Christ. Do you know anyone else who has the power to function as the agent of creation? Nobody knows anyone that has that kind of power. And proof that Christ existed before creation is found in verse 16. So look at verse 15 again. Let's pick up the firstborn of all creation, then verse 16. Why is he the firstborn of all creation? For or because by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things, Paul's emphatic, not some things, all things were created by Jesus and through Jesus, meaning that all things are created in reference to Jesus Christ. And being fully God, we know that Jesus, as the Son of God, worked with God the Father and God the Spirit to bring creation into existence, to create all things. Brothers and sisters, all that we have, including our very own existence, has been created by Jesus Christ. Tony Reinke says, apart from Christ, there is no art, there is no science, no technology, no agriculture, no microprocessor, no iPhone, and no medical innovation. Nothing that now exists, visible or invisible, can exist if it first didn't exist in the mind of the Creator. Apart from Christ, there is nothing. And then listen to this line. The value of all things is relative to him. Don't miss that last line. The value of all things is relevant to Christ. Meaning that the value of everything else must be measured in light of the great value of Jesus who is preeminent in creation. Now remember, we have zeal for that which we value most. So what are you zealous for? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's a new iPhone or a new grandchild or that house that you've waited to buy. But our zeal for those things should not exceed our zeal for Jesus Christ because he created all those things and therefore their value is relative 
to his infinite worth and value, right? No wonder Paul writes then, all things were created for him, meaning that Christ is the reason and the goal for all of creation because nothing else exists in the entire universe that's more valuable than Jesus. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created for Jesus. Christ's preeminence in creation, it holds him up over all created things, over all people, over all nations, over all worldly powers, over all that we see and don't see. We, it all exists for Jesus and to make much of Jesus because he is preeminent in creation. And we are zealous for Jesus when we see his preeminence in creation. Okay, second, the way we see the preeminence of Christ in this text. Number two, the preeminence of Christ in his sovereign rule. In his sovereign rule. Christ not only creates all things, he has the authority and the power to sovereignly rule over all that he has created. We see that in verses 17 and 18. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. First half of verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Given that Christ is the preeminent image of God, given that Jesus is the perfect representative of for God as the last Adam, given that he existed before creation and was involved in the work of creating all things, all things that now exist to give Christ glory, it is right for Paul then to say in verse 17 about Christ, he, meaning Christ, is before all things. You probably noticed it in the text that Paul uses this repetitive language for times in our text he uses that phrase all things he's saying that there isn't anything that exists that christ hasn't created and there isn't anything that doesn't exist for christ's glory therefore only christ can be declared as before all things this past may the the world watch as king charles was was coronated as king, right, of the United Kingdom, taking the place of his mom's dignified rule. He is a king. But King Charles is not before all things. Another one of our ten grandchildren, actually our youngest granddaughter, her name is Isla, she thinks she rules the universe. She is six years old, going on 26. Let me just give you an illustration of why it's legitimate to say about her that she thinks she rules the universe. I was recently in the car with her. I forget. I was taking her somewhere. We were doing something together. And she, she was saying, Grandpa, I want you to stop, and I want you to get me this snack at the store. I said, well, why should I do that? Why should I stop and get you this snack at the store? She said, because you are my butler. I said, oh, I'm your butler. 
you know what, Grandpa? And if you stop and get me the snack, I'll make you my chief butler. That's what I'll do. <laughs> Isla thinks she rules the world. But Isla is not before all things. There is no prime minister, no president, no dictator, no king, no grandchild that is before all things. Only Jesus. Only Jesus is before all things. Only he is the one that is the king of kings and Lord of lords. Only he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Only he is the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only Jesus is the one before every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no person there is no technology, there is no situation, there is no thing in our lives that Christ does not rule over. Now, knowing that Jesus sovereignly rules over things, I think that has real value to us, doesn't it? It is value to us because we are living in a world that's saturated with fear. Saturated with fear. Let me just give you one example from the world of technology. Technology is advancing rapidly, and artificial intelligence, as you well know, is advancing at a pace that can stir fear. Right now in the United States, there's a big strike in Hollywood. The writers of scripts for TV shows and movies, and now the actors and actresses have joined the strike, and they're, they're negotiating, and one of the, the issues in that negotiation is that writers are fearful that they're going to lose their jobs because AI has written some good scripts of TV shows and movies, and so they don't want AI to have a place, and Hollywood producers are saying, no, nah, not so fast. We might want AI, and so people live fearful that they're going to lose their jobs. There's fear that AI intelligence will surpass that of human intelligence, creating catastrophic situations where now robots rule the world. That's kind of what we hear, right? And fear is stirred. Here's the good news. We need not fear because Jesus rules over all including artificial intelligence. Tony Reinke says, In any discussion of technology, many Christians get hung up on the most powerful technologists in the world who are inventing the most threatening innovations on earth. Nuclear power, killing weapons, modified genetics, artificial intelligence, and assume that these men and women fall outside God's governance. And then he simply says this, They don't. They don't, because as the text tells us, Jesus is before all things, and he sovereignly rules over all things, including artificial intelligence. You see, fear can do something in our lives. It does many things, but one of the things is it reveals what we value most. You see, what we value is someone who has the authority and power to rule over those things that stir our fear. 
That's what we value. That's what we want. Jesus is that someone, brothers and sisters. He is that someone who sovereignly rules over all. And so people like us who are zealous for Christ, we should not be anxious or fearful or despondent because we know by faith that Christ is before all things and therefore sovereignly rules over all things, including those things in your life that stir fear. And we see proof that Jesus is ruler over all things in the second half of verse 17, where Paul says this, in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Jesus literally holds all things in this universe together. I was trying to think of an illustration to to illustrate that. It's very hard, but I'll give you one. So Dave and I were together in March in the Philippines. We, we were a part of the first um, Sovereign Grace Churches Asia Pacific Pastors and Wives Conference. And uh, uh, my friend Bob Wright and I, a member of our church, we flew from Philadelphia to L.A. and then L.A. to uh, Manila where we joined Dave. And when I got off the plane in L.A., I pulled my luggage off the, uh, out of the overhead bin and the, the handle broke on the suitcase on one end. And so I'm kind of, you know, limping through uh, LAX. We're late for the flight because our flight was delayed. We get, and we, we had to check the bag. And this guy, he duct tapes the, the whole, you know, bag together. Not that that worked at all, but he did it. And so we get to Manila, and I was saying, hey, Dave, uh, my handle broke on my suitcase. I, I'm not sure what to do. You know, is there a place to buy one? And, of course, Dave being a do-it-yourself genius, He said to me, oh, Mark, we'll get some super glue and we'll put that thing back together. Now, knowing Dave the way I do, it didn't build a lot of confidence that that was actually going to work. Uh, But at one point in the break in the conference, Dave Taylor and Bob Wright and I, we are running around the Mall of Asia, which is like the second biggest mall in the world, I learned later, looking for super glue. And so we get to, we find an Ace Hardware store, if you're familiar with those, that has super glue. We pay like three bucks for, a, or whatever it was, seven bucks for super glue. And we go back to my room and I said, I don't know, Dave, I'm not sure this is going to work. Oh, mate, it's going to work. So we, <laughs> we get the super glue out, we put it together, you know, holding it tight, and we had to let it dry. And to Dave's credit, it worked. <laughs> I still use that bag today, thinking at any moment it's going to break, but the super glue is holding all things together that I'm carrying around the world with me. Jesus is like that super glue, isn't he? He's like that super glue, only infinitely stronger and infinitely more powerful. See, without Jesus' active sovereign rule, the stars would fall from their place. The planets would spin out of their orbits. Electrons would stop circling around nuclei. Our bodies would stop working. Things would be a mess if Christ didn't hold all things together. But with Jesus, all things, not not some things, you got to get that right, 
all things hold together. The one who is preeminent over all has preeminent authority and power to hold all things together that he has created and rules over. The author of Hebrews describes it this way. And he, meaning Christ, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By, by a word. With a word, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, didn't he? With a word, Jesus calmed the storm, didn't he? With a word, he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, didn't he? And with a word, he delivered demoniacs and healed people of their diseases. See, this is our Jesus. Jesus who is preeminent over all and with a word sovereignly holds all things together. Now knowing that there is someone in our lives that holds all things together, I believe that has great value to us. Especially when it seems that all things in your life are falling apart. It has great value in that moment, doesn't it? See, knowing that Jesus sovereignly rules over things and holds all things together is valuable to you when you lose your job, when you get the cancer diagnosis, when you lose close friends, when you are the recipient of false accusations or you watch your son or daughter walk away from Christ. In moments like that, you know what's valuable to you? It's this truth. Jesus is actively, wisely, and compassionately ruling all over all of your losses and challenges and sufferings, and he alone is holding it all together. Jill and I would say that at least to this point in our life, the greatest trial that we have walked through has probably been over the last five, six years. Um, we have three daughters, as I mentioned, 10 grandchildren, three daughters, and our middle daughter, Kelly, was married about 16 years ago. And about after the first year of marriage, um, things just didn't quite seem right. She began to withdraw from us a bit, and we didn't get to see the grandkids as much. And as we began to piece things together, we realized that our daughter, Kelly, was in an abusive marriage. And she suffered. And she stayed longer in that marriage than she should have because of her children. And eventually made the decision to separate. She came to our home. Her girls came. They now live with us, actually. And she came in a very frail and weakened state. And over time that led up to that her moving in and now with her in she's by God's grace much stronger Jill and I we didn't know what to do it felt like our daughter's life and our life was falling apart and the only thing that we knew what to do was to press into Jesus was to go to Jesus was to take our concerns and our cares to Jesus We've prayed together like we've never prayed before. And there's much that we've learned from it, but 
one of the things that happened through our suffering and trial is that Jesus is sweeter to us. We believe he holds all things together. We know, or we wouldn't have gotten through. See, suffering uniquely reveals what we value most. We want someone who has the power and authority to hold all things together. And when we know that, we can be zealous for Christ as a result. You see, Christians can really be people as they are described in Scripture as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because in our sufferings, we are zealous for the one, for Jesus Christ, who we know by faith is holding all things together. It's a lot easier for us to be zealous for Christ when good things are happening in our life, isn't it? It's a lot harder when bad times are happening in our lives. But you know what? Even when bad things are happening in our life, you and I, we can still be zealous for Jesus. Do you know why? Riley said this morning, he gave us the answer. J.C. Ryle says, a zealous person in Christianity is preeminently a person of one thing. And brothers and sisters, that one thing, it's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And so in your worst moments, in your darkest nights, darkest nights, be a person of one thing. Be zealous for the one who in those darkest moments you have faith is holding all things together. You see, Jesus must remain the most, most important thing in our lives in the good times and in the bad times. And some of you arrived here at Together 2023 with some bad things, I believe, happening in your life, whether it's suffering or uncertainty about the future. Maybe you've experienced loss or in a, in a prolonged trial. Without this afternoon, just praying about our time. And it's like the Lord just gave me the impression that some of you arrived here looking for hope. And you know where your hope is? It's Jesus. Jesus is your hope. So if that's you, tonight, don't just stop and stare at Jesus. Do that. Don't just stop and stare. But you need to do this as well. You need to draw near. Draw near to Jesus and give him your burdens and give him your sorrows and your uncertainties because if he has the power to hold all things together, and he does, he certainly has the power to unburden you tonight. See, being zealous doesn't mean that we won't have heartbreak and difficulty. Rather, being zealous means that you are preeminently a person of one thing, or should I say one person, Jesus Christ, and you are confident that he's using those sufferings and trials and difficulties for his good purposes in your life. See, Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation, and he is the Lord who sovereignly rules over all, 
And verse 8 tells us that rule includes your church and it includes our family of churches. See, in verse 18, what, what Paul's skillfully doing is he's connecting the pre-incarnate work of Christ as creator with the incarnate redemptive work of Christ as Savior. That's what he's doing there in that verse, which leads to the third way that we see the preeminence of Christ in this passage, the preeminence of Christ in redemption. Look at verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, meaning that he is the head of a new creation that's known as the people of Christ who are formed by the new covenant that he establishes by his blood that he sheds, as the text says, on his cross, as it says there in the verse. Now that word beginning there in verse 18, it means founder is what it means. In other words, Jesus is, he is the founder of the new covenant. He is the founder of the New Testament church that is now comprised of the people of Christ. See, only Jesus can be the head of the body because it was his body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And in so doing, he accomplishes the work of redemption and he also accomplishes the work of reconciliation. So the preeminence of Christ is not only seen in his death, it's also seen three days later when Jesus rises from the dead, which is why he's referred to in the text as the firstborn. From the dead. Now that word firstborn means in verse 18 the same thing that it means in verse 15. It means supreme over. So Christ is supreme over death. He reigns over death. Isn't that good news? Before Christ, death had the final word. Death reigned, we know, because of sin. But now, death no longer reigns because the penalty for sin has been paid by the death of Christ and death no longer has the last word because Christ rose from the dead demonstrating his victory over death. So in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new creation, a new humanity, a new order begins where the people of Christ sing with zeal, oh, death, where is your victory, right? Oh, death, where is your sting? Brothers and sisters, I think resurrection is a valuable thing to us, right? It's a valuable thing because we want to know when we die, will we really rise? And will we have eternal life with Christ? Two weeks ago, uh, a dear member of our church, Karen Foley, passed away. 
I attended her memorial service a week ago, today, last Saturday, and Karen was remembered as a woman who served our church for over 30 years, maybe over 35 years, just, just passionately. And Andy Farmer, who led through memorial service, rightly described Karen as, as having zeal for Christ. He said, Karen had a pronounced zeal for Jesus. And then Andy said this, do you know why Karen had this pronounced zeal for Christ? It's because Karen took Jesus at his word. And what was Jesus' word? It was John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. See, Karen's zeal for Christ was fueled by the certainty that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and she knows at one point she would die, yet Karen was going to live because she believed in the one who was rightly called the firstborn from the dead. So allow the certainty of the resurrection to stir your zeal for Jesus because though you die, if tonight you are in Christ, you will live, and you will live forever with Jesus. But, but how can we be certain? How can we be certain that Christ is preeminent over death? How can we be certain that we will have eternal life with him? Paul wants us to be certain, and so he answers that question in verses 19 and 20. How can we be certain that he's defeated death? How can we be certain that he has defeated death and we will live with him Verse 19, for because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Christ is preeminent over all, including death, because in Christ, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning that Only Jesus and no one else is the perfect sacrifice as the God-man who in our place shed his blood on the cross for our sins and thereby reconciling us to God. Filled with all the fullness of God, only Jesus and no one else. Only Jesus could be the one who was pierced for our transgressions who was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. Because we've been reconciled to God. The one through whom all things were created is the same one through whom all things are reconciled by his blood shed on his cross. No one else in history could have done this. Not Adam, not kings, not judges, not leaders, and therefore no one else is worthy of our zeal, and no one else, no one else is worthy of our passion. See, we got to remember who we are. Verse 21 reminds us at one time we were alienated from God, right? Hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, 
But because of Jesus, we now no longer are enemies of God, but he calls us friends. We are no longer orphans. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We once lived in the domain of darkness, but now we have been transferred to the kingdom of his son. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. A kingdom where we can draw near to our king and we can gaze upon his many-sided glories which will fulfill and satisfy our souls like nothing in this world can satisfy. See, Paul is intentionally using fullness language here because he's countering the false teachers in Colossae who are inviting Christians to enjoy what they call true fullness by following their philosophy, chapter 2, verse 8, and their rules, chapter 2, verse, verses 16 through 23. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me there in chapter 2. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty, not full, empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why? For in him, right? Hearing it again, aren't we? The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul is saying that the only way that you and I can experience true fullness in Christ is because Jesus is the only one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So he's saying, he's making a, con a contrast that the temporary, finite things of this world that we think will fulfill us never will fulfill us because only the infinite, eternal fullness of God will fulfill us. See, I, I think us being fulfilled and satisfied, it it's a valuable thing to us, isn't it? We like that. If you know my friend Dave, Dave is zealous for his candies <laughs> and his Tim Tams and his ice cream because he, he likes those things. They satisfy him. They fulfill him. In fact, I brought a picture with me that shows his satisfaction. Yes, right there. <laughs> Dave, I don't know what that is, but it it looks very sweet, yeah. Does he look satisfied? Here's the scary thing. If I asked some of you to take out your iPhones right now and show me your pictures, some of you would have pictures like this of Dave. That's, that's my guess. But Dave knows this. You know this. Only Jesus can truly satisfy us. Because in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, now get this. This is not just an abstract truth for you. It's not. It's an organic reality for us as Christians. Paul says in verse 18 that Christ is the head of the body, the church. And Doug Moo makes a great observation about that verse. As the metaphor of body and head implies, Christ is in an organic relationship with his people. Get this in a way that is not true of the creation in general. Just us. Just the people of Christ. So if you have been reconciled to Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ, 
you can relationally draw near. You can relationally stop and stare. You can draw near. And you know what you can do? You can behold his many-sided glories. And a sight of those many-sided glories, they will satisfy your soul like nothing else will. John Owen says, only a sight of his glory and nothing else will truly satisfy God's people. The hearts of believers are like a magnetized needle which cannot rest until it's pointing north. So also a believer magnetized by the love of Christ will always be restless until he or she comes to Christ and beholds, beholds the glory of Christ. Brothers and sisters, tonight, draw near, relationally draw near by the blood of Christ and behold his glory and allow your soul to be satisfied. See, a satisfied soul is a zealous soul because that person, they want more of Jesus, don't they? Let us be people who want to know him more and love him more, and treasure him more, because only Jesus can truly satisfy our souls, because only he is the one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. People who have satisfied souls are people who are zealous for Christ because they regularly stop and stare. You got to do it. Regularly stop and stare. It's a joy beholding the glory of the one who is preeminent over everything. Let me close with this for as long as I can remember, and love, you don't know I'm going to say this, but at least 20 years, maybe 25, Jill has a list of songs she plays every Sunday morning before she goes to church. She's in the bathroom getting ready, and it's rocking in our bathroom. It is very loud. Just like it was last Sunday, we were getting ready at a similar time, and Jill puts on the list, and we're rocking. And the very first song that she will blast from our bathroom every Sunday morning is entitled King of Glory by Third Day. It's an old one. So if you're young, you probably never heard of it before. It's an oldie but goodie in our home. Listen to the words of the third verse and then the chorus. Who is the king of glory with strength and majesty and wisdom beyond measure, the gracious king of kings? The Lord of earth and heaven. We saw that tonight, didn't we? The creator of all things, Colossians 1, verse 15. Who is the king of glory? He's everything to me. His name is Jesus, precious Jesus, the Lord Almighty, the King of my heart, the King of glory. Jesus is the King of glory, isn't he? As Mark Jones says, he is the center of God's works of creation, providence, and redemption. We saw that in our text tonight, didn't we? And by his grace, brothers and sisters, may he remain the king of our hearts so that we can live zealous lives for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for 
this passage here in Colossians 1. Thank you for inspiring it to be written in a way that for us as Christians we can we can stop and we can stare through these words at Jesus. And I pray that as we sing now, we would behold his glory. As we, as we fellowship tonight, we would talk about his glory. As we go into this week, I pray that you would stir fresh zeal in us by giving us times where we behold the one who created all and rules over all and is the king and preeminent ruler of our redemption. We pray this. Give us more of Jesus so that we can live zealous life, zealous lives for Jesus so that he can receive glory through our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.